Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Well, our series is called Flexible, and we're asking the question, are you able to flex? Are you able to bend and not break when life isn't fair? And we know that life isn't fair. I knew I didn't have to make a sales pitch for that. You already know that. You've known that since you were a kid. You've seen that a lot of times when you put the right thing into life, you put the effort in, and you try to do the right thing, you don't always get the right thing out. Um, A lot of times you go through experiences that just... They don't make sense if you try to follow God. If you're like, well, if I'm doing the right thing, I should be experiencing the right outcomes. But it just doesn't always work that way. And so we've said that all of us experience unfairness in life, so that's universal. But we've said there is something that's not universal about the way people deal with stress. Some people tend to be very resilient. They tend to really bounce back when they go through uh, unfairness in life. And other people just tend to have kind of a meltdown. They tend to have kind of a breakdown. And we said in week one that if you're not careful, um, stress will distract you from your purpose. It'll take you offline from the why that should drive your life. Why do I do what I do? And that unfairness can kind of grab your attention and distract you from your purpose. And then we said it can sort of absorb you and the whole rest of the world can sort of melt away and all you see is the unfairness. And then we said eventually it can derail you, at which point you sort of either lose your temper or you lose your identity and who you are becomes about the unfairness that you're facing. But we talked about the fact that Joseph, who is sort of the key character of our series, we're spending four weeks looking at this Bible character named Joseph, who probably, other than Jesus, is the Bible character who taught us more about resilience than anyone else, taught us more about flexibility than anyone else. Joseph was able to go through tremendous unfairness without becoming derailed by it. And as a matter of fact, he seemed to always come out on top. And that's what we want to learn about. How do you come out on top even when life is tremendously unfair? And we said in that week one that it's interesting that the Bible says that Joseph became a successful person, an optimal person in a suboptimal environment. You remember that in week one we said that Joseph started his life out in a suboptimal environment. He was born into a really weirded out family. His dad had had children with four different women. Two of them were sisters, and they were in this weird sort of sibling rivalry thing going on where they were competing for their husband's affection and also competing for uh, the bragging rights of who had the most kids. And uh, so you've got, you know, this really weird marriage dynamic, and then you've got all these sons in this relationship. Joseph is born really late in the game. He's one of the very last children born uh, to this father. And this father just he, he plays favorites, and parents should never play favorites, but Jacob, Joseph's dad, he plays favorites, and Joseph is his favorite, and unfortunately, that really set him up badly with his brothers. He set Joseph up to really be the manager of his huge operation, his agricultural operation that he had going on, which did not make him popular with his much 
older brothers. And then on top of that, his brothers were, you know, sometimes they were kind of morons. And Joseph was sort of a goody two-shoes. And so they would send Joseph out, Jacob would send Joseph out to go check on his brothers, and he would see the moronic things they were doing, and he would come back and tell their dad about the stuff they were doing wrong. And so now he was not just sort of like, you know, dad's playing favorites and he's dad's favorite. And not only is he, you know, not had to work his way up the ranks the way we have, and he's supposed to be, you know, managing us. But on top of that, he's like this tattletale who's getting us in trouble. So they just couldn't stand for that. And they literally decided to kill Joseph. But as you recall from our first week, right fortuitously, right, right at that time when they're deciding that they're going to kill Joseph, here comes a slave train along and they literally sell their brother into slavery to make a little bit of pocket money. They decide that would be better than killing him. So Joseph goes from being the favored son in this wealthy Israelite family to being on the very bottom of the human order. He arrives in Egypt as a slave. Whoever bids the most money for him owns him. And he's 17. The rest of his life now is set up to be the most unfair adult experience you can possibly Imagine, his whole adult life, he's now owned by someone else. But remember we said in week one that the Bible says Joseph became a successful man where? In the house of Potiphar, his master. So in a place where we would not expect him to be successful, he somehow rises to the top. And this is sort of the unique nature of Joseph. It always seems to happen for him that somehow he brings his A game even in the middle of very difficult situations. And as a result, he gets put in charge. So we said then that if you need an optimal situation in life to be a success, you're never going to get there. There's something we can learn from Joseph, and that is that if you want to become successful, you're going to have to learn to become a success in a suboptimal environment. And that's what we talked about in week one. But you remember in week two, we said that now Joseph, he's risen through the ranks at Potiphar's house. He became a successful man, and and in doing so, he went from being sort of this low-level slave to now he's he's gotten promoted and promoted and promoted and promoted, and now he is running Potiphar's household for him. He's in charge of everything that goes on at Potiphar's house, which is a wonderful thing except for the fact that now he's accidentally drawn the attention of Potiphar's wife. The Bible says that Joseph was good-looking, he was well-built, and Potiphar's wife got the hots for him. And she keeps going around hitting on him, trying to get him to sleep with her. And really, the wording of the scripture really gives us the indication that she felt it was her right for him to sleep with her because they owned him. But as you recall, he he wouldn't go along with that for a couple of reasons. One is he understood that that would be betraying his boss that he had had to be responsible for Potiphar. That's how he had risen up through the ranks, was being responsible with what Potiphar had put him in charge of. And it would have been the worst possible betrayal of Potiphar's trust to then sleep with his wife, no matter, you know, could have been, again, I, I would not at all think that Joseph didn't have part of him that was really tempted to do that, but he knew that it would have been wrong by Potiphar. But remember, that wasn't his key objection. His main objection is he said, not only would this be betraying Potiphar, but this would be betraying God. This would be a sin against God. See, Joseph understood that the main reason he had gotten promoted and promoted and promoted and promoted was that he and God were on a good trajectory. There was a good relationship happening between him and God. And he understood that to sleep with Potiphar's wife would mean to trade that great relationship with God away. And he wasn't going to do that. So as you recall, Potiphar's wife just kept going, trying to get Joseph to sleep with her. And we said that 
the temptation in that moment is, is to be expected because we said that when we're going through a season of unfairness, and Joseph's life was a season of unfairness, when we're going through a season of unfairness, we are more susceptible to temptation and Satan knows it. So that's when, when he sends Potiphar's wife in there. And we said that Joseph taught us three things to do when we're facing temptation. The first thing is you say no. Joseph said no, he wasn't going to do it. The second thing is you stay away from the temptation as much as possible because the Bible says that Joseph stayed out of Potiphar's wife's way as much as he possibly could. And then the third thing we said is you have to run. If, you, if, if, you, if you're out of options, just run away as far and as fast as you can from anything that would separate you from God. And you recall that we sort of took that from the story because there's a point at which Potiphar's wife reaches out and grabs Joseph's garment as a sort of control, power play to say, you will sleep with me. But he was so determined not to do that, that he literally ran out of his clothes. And so she's holding this garment now, and now she has a prop for this little drama she's going to put on. She, she invites all the, the men servants of the house and brings them around, and she plays on their emotions for one thing, because most of these guys are probably Egyptians. And the thing about being in charge, and if you're really good at being in charge, sometimes you won't be the most popular person in the world. And I sort of take from this story that maybe not everybody that worked for Joseph loved working for a foreigner, loved working for this Hebrew guy that Potiphar brought in because Potiphar's wife says, this Hebrew kid that Potiphar brought in to you know, manage things around here, he tried to rape me and see, I've got evidence. I've got his garment right here. And then after she got them all stirred up, Potiphar came home and she put on the little drama for Potiphar. She's like, see this garment? I'll tell you how it happened. Joseph came in, he tried to rape me, and I, I, grabbed his, I grabbed his cloak. Here it is. You can see what happened. Now, as you recall, Potiphar had to respond to that, right? And so Potiphar did something that I wouldn't have expected him to do if he believed her story. He put Joseph in the prison where the king's prisoners were kept. Now, that was not a prison where you would put a slave. The, the prison where the king's prisoners were kept, that was sort of like a, a prison for people that had somehow diplomatically run afoul of the king. This was sort of a medium security prison. This was sort of a, uh, a prison for ele people of elevated status. And so to put Joseph there doesn't make a lot of sense at first. And the other thing I would say is this. I think that if Potiphar really believed that Joseph had tried to rape his wife, I think he would have killed him on the spot. But I think that Potiphar had been around Joseph long enough to know Joseph's character, and I think he'd been around his wife long enough to kind of get a clue as to her character. So I think he kind of knew what was going on here. But again, Potiphar's wife has spread this all over the place, and he can't do nothing. If he does nothing, that brings shame on him and on his wife, so he has to do something. But I think the fact that he doesn't kill Joseph right then shows that he doesn't really believe the story that his wife is, is selling. So he puts him in this prison. Now what's interesting about this prison where the king's prisoners are kept is you will see in the text that we read today, that prison is actually on Potiphar's property. I think Potiphar had so much respect for Joseph and so much belief that Joseph made things successful wherever he went that he was not ready to vote him off the island. If he had to do something to punish Joseph, he was still going to try to keep him on his property because he knew if I put him in the prison, then the prison's going to do better. Wherever I put him, things are going to be better. So that's where we pick up our story. We pick up our story with Joseph in prison. And, and by the way, I can't prove this. But you know what I think the hardest part of Joseph being in prison was? I don't think it was the lack of freedom. I think that's really bad. I don't think it was sort of other people being in control of his life, although I know um, if, you're, if a person's in prison, that's a, that's a really difficult thing to deal with. I think the hardest part for Joseph being in prison was that in the books, 
The reason he was in prison was attempted rape, which is the last thing he would have ever done. See, Satan will do that to you. If Satan really wants to discourage you, if he really wants to get you off track, he will let somebody accuse you of the very last thing that you would ever do because there's something demeaning and debasing about that. So now he's stuck in this prison and potentially for the rest of his life. That leads me to the question that I want to start off our talk with. I, every talk so far, I've started off with a question. The first talk, I said, how, long, or how much unfairness can you take before you break? The second talk, we said, how much unfairness can you take before your integrity breaks? And in this message, I want to ask you, how long can you keep the faith when there's no light at the end of the tunnel? See, I'm the kind of person, I need to know when this is going to end. If I'm going through a difficult time, I need to know when this is going to be done. Tell me. As long as, I'm, as long as I can see light at the end of the tunnel, I'm okay. So long as I understand when the test uh, results are coming in. So long as I understand when the graduation date is. So long as I understand uh, when this phase is going to be over, whatever this phase happens to be. Whatever it is that I'm going through, I can endure. I can put my energy into it so long as I know when it's going to end. Where I struggle is when I don't know when the end is coming. And I just have to persevere and wait and see. I'm not a very patient person. That doesn't, that doesn't work well for me. I'm a checker. I'm a little OCD. So I have to check things over and over again. So like if I'm expecting a really important email, my wife will vouch for this, I'll have my phone out all the time and I'm refreshing my emails as if I would not get a notification when the email came through. And my phone is built to tell me when the email comes through. But it's almost like I don't even trust my phone. This important email is coming through and I you know, say I gotta make sure that I catch it when it comes through. Or like test results, you know, I'll be in the patient portal. They were, in, they were due by now, they're supposed to be in by now. I'm hitting the refresh button as if somehow between those refreshes, it will finally have landed, you know? Don't like waiting indefinitely for things. And I especially don't like waiting indefinitely for things when it's not fair when I was told it was already gonna happen or when I was given the impression that I should have gotten an answer by now. How long can you keep the faith when there's no light at the end of the tunnel? That's what we're gonna talk about in Joseph's life. Now, I will warn you about this, and this has been the case for all these talks. Next week, maybe not quite so much this, the, as, as it has been the previous weeks, but there's so much story here in the story of Joseph, so much ink on the page devoted to Joseph, that really the format of these talks has been, we have a lot of story to walk through and then takeaways at the very end. And this one is probably gonna be more that way than any of the other messages. So this promise I make to you, at the end, there are gonna be some powerful takeaways, but we have to walk through a lot of story to get there. But I have not forgotten the takeaways. They are there, we just have to sort of get to it. So we're gonna pick up our story in Genesis 40, verse one. And I want you to notice that there are a couple of times in the story where God hits the fast forward button, right, in, in the narrative. Because the first thing we see in Genesis 40, end of Genesis 39, Joseph is put in prison. Genesis 40 verse 1, the first three words are sometime later. It's almost as though God presses the fast forward button and says, well, not a lot happened to speak of during the time between Joseph was put in prison and the next part of the story. But Joseph had to experience each of those days where not a lot happened and things looked just as grim as they looked the day before. See, some of you in this room, you could, tell a, you could, you could get up and, and give a testimony that has some time later in it. I was diagnosed with cancer and some time later, I went into remission, right? I, I, we were in a really financial uh, 
we were in, a, in just a really bad place financially, and sometime later we got our debt paid off and things were better financially. We, you know, my kid just went off the rails and was living a life that, that was totally antithetical to everything they had ever learned about God, and sometime later they came back to God and their life got right. And if anybody else was listening to the story, it would seem so compressed, but you know what it was like to live every single one of those days during the sometime while you were waiting for the later. See, Joseph had to be in prison during the sometime waiting for the later. Sometime later, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and chief baker offended their royal master and chief cupbearer here is like chief butler. Pharaoh became angry with these two officials and he put them in the prison where Joseph was, in the palace of the captain of the guard. They remained in prison for quite some time and the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph who looked after them. And again, I told you that I really think the, the prison that Joseph's in is in Potiphar's house, and here's why I think so. The Bible says that he put them in the prison where Joseph was in the palace of the captain of the guard. I don't think it gets any more clear than that. He was basically on Potiphar's property. And now the, the chief butler and the chief baker have been put in prison, and Potiphar himself assigns Joseph to look after them. Now, when I was in Sunday school, and I heard about the chief baker and the chief butler offending the king... Right? I thought to myself, well, the Pharaoh must have been a little hothouse orchid. You know, I mean, it, how, how much do you get offended by that your butler didn't shine your shoes enough, right? The baker baked bread that was too crusty. I mean, what exactly rises to the level of putting your baker and your butler in prison, you know? Um, but the truth is, that's sort of a, I guess, an Americanized version of what a baker and a butler does. At the time, these were very, very high officials uh, in the government. And one of the reasons they were so high up is because they had to be some of the most trusted. Actually, I would say they had to be two of the most trusted individuals in the Egyptian government. Pharaohs especially were very susceptible to assassination attempts. And one of the easiest ways to try to assassinate a pharaoh was to mess with his food or to mess with what he was going to drink. And so the baker and the butler, they had to be so trusted that they were the first line of defense against anything getting on Pharaoh's table that would somehow hurt him in some way. Now, I can't prove this, okay, because it's not stated in the scripture specifically, but I think that the reason that Pharaoh sends the butler and the baker to jail is because he got sick. I don't know that for sure, but I think that's why. And I'll also tell you later, I actually do think somebody tried to mess with him. I do think there may have been an attempt on his life and one of these guys was kind of in on it, but we'll, we'll talk about that in just a second. While they were in prison, Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker each had a dream one night, and each dream had its own meaning. When Joseph saw them the next morning, he noticed that they both looked upset. Why do you look so worried today, he asked them. One translation says, why do you look so glum? And they replied, we both had dreams last night, but no one can tell us what they mean. Okay, time out. Here's what, what's happening when they say no one can tell us what they mean. So in the nation of Israel... There was sort of the belief that if a dream had significance, and they recognized that all, not all dreams had significance. Some dreams, though, potentially God was trying to communicate something through. And if that was the case, it was God who was, who, who was assigning the dream. It was God who knew the meaning of the dream. And God would interpret the dream through a prophet or through somebody who served him. In other nations, sometimes dream analysis and interpretation had sort of an occult flavor. But in Egypt, there was a sort of different vibe altogether. This is a time when Egypt was starting to develop basic theories of empiricism. 
And they thought that the thing to do is to document, document, document. If somebody had a dream, you document what the dream was, and then you document what happened afterwards. And then the next person has a dream, you document the dream, you document what happened afterwards. And in a sense, what they were trying to do is develop a dream interpretation dictionary. That somebody could say, well, I had this dream, you'd look it up in the book, and you might not find the exact same dream, but you'd find one close, and you'd say, well, you know, it probably means something like this, because this dream meant that, right? So it was, a, it was an attempt at developing a science of dream interpretation. And the chief butler and the chief baker would have always had access to these guys who did the dream interpretation stuff. The reason they're upset is they've had these dreams, they have a sense that these dreams are really major, but there is, there's nobody that they can call in who can bring in the dream books and tell them what the dream means. So Joseph sets them straight. He says, interpreting dreams is God's business. He's basically saying, I don't need a book. I can interpret the dream for you. So go ahead and tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream first. He said, in my dream, I saw a grapevine in front of me. The vine had three branches that began to bud and blossom, and soon it produced clusters of ripe grapes. I was holding Pharaoh's wine cup in my hand, so I took a cluster of grapes and squeezed the juice into the cup. Then I placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. This is what the dream means, Joseph says. The three branches represent three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift you up and restore you to your position as his chief cupbearer. I'm not sure how relevant this is. The, the thing that says Pharaoh will, will lift you up, it's actually a, a, it's a good translation, but if you want to go literal with what it says in the Hebrew, it, really, it literally says he's going to lift up your head, just like you would do with somebody who's dejected and depressed and sad and their chin sort of resting on their chest, and you might lift their head up as a way of making eye contact and encouraging them to know things are going to be okay. It's really what Joseph is saying is going to happen. That'll be important in just a second. He says, now, when that happens, please remember me. Do me a favor when things go well for you. Mention me to Pharaoh so he might let me out of this place. For I was kidnapped from my homeland, the land of the Hebrews, and now I'm here in prison, but I did nothing to deserve it. So there's this little powwow going on now between the butler and Joseph, and Joseph is saying, please, please remember me um, because I'm not supposed to be here. I didn't do anything wrong. Tell the Pharaoh. And while they're having this discussion, the, the, the baker pipes up and says, hello, you forget about me. I had a dream too. Um, he, he said, I, I had a dream too. In my dream, there were three baskets of white pastry stacked on my head. The top basket contained all kinds of pastries for Pharaoh, but the birds came and ate them from the basket on my head. Joseph says, well, here's what your dream means. The three baskets also represent three days. Three days from now, Pharaoh will lift you up and impale your body on a pole. I don't think that's the dream interpretation anybody's looking for, you know? <laughs> then the birds will come and peck away at your flesh. What, what's interesting about that wordplay thing I said before, so Joseph said to the butler, the Pharaoh's gonna lift your head. Interestingly, he said to the baker, Pharaoh's gonna lift up your head and he's gonna lift it up so far, he's gonna lift it off your body, right? Um, so he literally is saying, Pharaoh is going to behead you and then impale you on a giant spike so that birds can come in and eat your, your body. It was a way of shaming someone after executing them. It was sort of like there, there were levels of punishment and this was about as bad as it gets, that somebody had done something so bad that you wanted everybody to know, don't you ever do what this guy did. Right? So he's going to behead him and put him, put him on a spike. This is why I personally believe that the baker was in on some sort of assassination plot. Again, I can't prove it, but I think this is what it was. I think Pharaoh didn't know whether it was the baker or the butler, and it took him a while to figure out who it was. And once he knew who it was, um, that's why he restored the butler and, and uh, executed the baker. 
Pharaoh's birthday came three days later and he prepared a banquet for all of his officials and staff. He summoned his chief cupbearer and chief baker to join the other officials. He then restored the chief cupbearer to his former position so he could again hand Pharaoh his cup. But Pharaoh impaled the chief baker just as Joseph had predicted when he interpreted his dream. Now, this next verse, though, is the important one because we're really looking at this from Joseph's perspective because we want to learn about how to be flexible. We want to learn about how to bend and not break when life isn't fair. And we're trying to see what Joseph went through so we can really sort of put ourselves in that frame of mind. Check this out. Pharaoh's chief cupbearer, however, forgot all about Joseph, never giving him another thought. Isn't that the way it happens sometimes? That you do something for somebody and you hope that fairness will prevail. They'll want to do something in return for you. You've put in the work. You expect them to put the work in in reverse, you know? It's like, I, you know, I'm, I'm doing this for the family. Why can't you carry your weight. Well, I'm, I'm doing this for the, for the workplace. I'm doing my job. Why can't you do your job? Why am I having to do my job and your job? You know, we expect people to remember the investment we've made and that they will live up to their obligations. But the butler didn't do that. The Bible says never giving him another thought. Now, now here's the thing. It would be one thing to say the butler forgot about Joseph for a month. Month is a long time when you're waiting for news, isn't it? Any of you ever waited for really crucial news for a month? That's a long time. Maybe a couple months go by, maybe three months, six months go by, a year. The Bible says, though, in Genesis 41.1, it was two full years before the next part of the story. You want to talk about hitting the fast forward button. Two full years. Now, the Bible scholars tell us that there's something interesting about the way that the scripture tells the story. Because in the ancient world, to, to, to give this kind of a, a time lapse really indicates that nothing changed. For two years, nothing changed. And what's important about that is it doesn't just tell us that nothing changed in Joseph's situation. That's true. But it also tells us that Joseph didn't change in two years. See, the thing about it is, patiently waiting changes, Jonathan, because the more I have to be patient, the crankier I get, and the more difficult I am to live with. Wendy can bear witness to that. And yet somehow Joseph managed to continue to be who he was, to bring his A-game, to do what God had called him to do for all those two years. Now, what would you do if you're in a prison cell for two years, waiting? I'll tell you what I'd do. I'd mark an X on the wall for every day that I was there, waiting to hear back. And to give you some context for how long Joseph was waiting to hear back. If you make an X on the wall for every day that you're in prison for two years, it is all these X's, every single one of these represents a full day, 24 hours. All of those X's plus all of those X's plus a little more. I don't know if it does for you what it does for me. But when I see that, I think, wow, I could really learn something from Joseph about how to keep the faith. That's a lot of days to wait to hear back. How long can you keep the faith when there's no light at the end of the tunnel? There's gotta be something that we can learn from Joseph in this. So let's keep going in the story. Two full years later, Pharaoh dreamed 
that he was standing on the bank of the Nile River. In his dream, he saw seven fat, healthy cows come up out of the river and begin grazing in the marsh grass. Then he saw seven more cows come up behind them from the Nile, but these were scrawny and thin. These cows stood beside the fat cows on the riverbank. Then the scrawny, thin cows ate the seven healthy, fat cows. That's a weird dream. I'd have to eat a lot of spicy food before I start seeing cows eating cows in my dreams, you know? At this point in the dream, Pharaoh woke up, but he fell asleep again and had a second dream. This time he saw seven heads of grain, plump and beautiful, growing on a single stalk. Then seven more heads of grain appeared, but these were shriveled and withered by the east wind. And these thin heads swallowed up the seven plump, well-formed heads. And then Pharaoh woke up again and realized it was a dream. So the next morning, Pharaoh was very disturbed, makes sense to me, by the dreams. So he called for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. He said, guys, bring out the dream books. Bring out the interpretation books. We've got to figure out what this one means. And the guys show up and they do their due diligence. They're looking through the book. Fat cows and thin cows. Fat cows. And... I don't think we've seen that one, guys. Have we seen that one before? Have we seen the one about the cows? The cows eating the cows? I don't think we've seen that before, you know? I know. We, we've got the one about having to read your book report in front of the class in your underwear. We've got several of those other dreams that we've seen. But this one is, this one's weird. We haven't seen this one before. So when Pharaoh told him his dreams, not one of them could tell him what they meant. And then the butler has that moment. Oh, I forgot. The king's chief cupbearer spoke up. Today I've been reminded of my failure. Some time ago you were angry with the chief baker and me and you imprisoned us in the palace of the captain of the guard. One night the chief baker and I each had a dream and each dream had its own meaning. There was a young Hebrew man with us in the prison who was a slave of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams and he told us what each of our dreams meant. And everything happened just as he had predicted. I was restored to my position as cupbearer and the chief baker was executed and impaled on a pole. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph at once, and he was quickly brought from the prison. After he shaved and changed his clothes, he went in and stood before Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream last night. No one here can tell me what it means. But I've heard that when you hear about a dream, you can interpret it. And if I am, you know, Joseph's agent, I'm telling him, man, here's your chance. This is your chance to get out of prison this is your chance to, you know, I mean, if I'm, if I'm Joseph Sage and I tell Joseph, here's what you do. You go up to him and say, yes, I can interpret your dream, but it's going to cost you. You're going to have to let me out of prison, you know, you're going to have to pay me some money, you're going to have to set me up, I need an apartment, I think at least two bedrooms, it's time for me to actually have a little space to move around in, you know, something on the nice side of town, I'm looking for some, uh, you probably need to give me a car, and not some used piece of junk either, I mean a nice car, you know. This is what I'd be, I'd be having him negotiate, Right? And yet Joseph does the craziest thing you can possibly imagine. He says, it is beyond my power to do this. And if you're Joseph's friend, you're yelling at Joseph, don't say that. Obviously you can. What are you thinking? This is your moment. He said, but God can tell you what it means and set you at ease. We're going to see in a minute why this is important. So Pharaoh tells Joseph his dreams about the weird fat cows eating the skinny cows and the, the grain. And we understand this in, you know, Kansas wheat territory, the, the grain, the good-looking grain eating the scrawny east wind withered grain. And Joseph says, look, both of your dreams mean the same thing. God's telling you in advance what he's about to do. 
The seven healthy cows and the seven healthy heads of grain both represent seven years of prosperity. The seven thin scrawny cows that came up later and the seven thin heads of grain withered by the east wind represent seven years of famine. This will happen just as I have described it, for God has revealed to Pharaoh in advance what he is about to do. The next seven years will be a period of great prosperity throughout the land of Egypt. And in the Hebrew, it's, it's, there's like this massive, almost like hyperbole, but it's not. He's saying it is going to be unbelievably rich, the time that you're getting ready to go through. The next seven years, people are going to not believe their good fortune, how great the crops are, how, you know, how much their livestock is growing. He said, but afterward, there will be seven years of famine so great that all the prosperity will be forgotten in Egypt. Famine will destroy the land. And the famine's going to be so severe that even the memory of the good years will be erased. He's like, the depression will be so bad, people will even forget what, is, what it was like for there to be good times. As for having two similar dreams, it means that these events have been decreed by God and he will soon make them happen. Therefore, Pharaoh should find an intelligent and wise man and put him in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh should appoint supervisors over the land, let them collect one-fifth of all the crops, 20% tax, during the seven good years. Have them gather all the food produced in the good years that are just ahead and bring it to Pharaoh's storehouses. Store it away and guard it so that there will be food in the cities." That way there'll be enough to eat when the seven years of famine come to the land of Egypt. Otherwise, this famine will destroy the land. Now, the Bible says that Pharaoh, that Joseph's suggestions were well received by Pharaoh and his officials, and I, I can understand why. Joseph did not just give what he was asked for. He was asked for a dream interpretation, but he gave Pharaoh more than a dream interpretation. He gave him a blueprint for what to do. He gave him a game plan. This was part of God's gifts package in Joseph. Joseph had the gifts package, the skills and talent of a manager, and he had honed it where? He had honed it as he was um, learning how to manage his brothers in Israel. He had honed it as he had served in Potiphar's house, and now he had honed it for years in a prison. And maybe in the prison, he had had to learn more than any other place how to ration supplies, how to make sure that there was enough for times where the, the supply wasn't as great, how to make sure that things were saved up in the right times. And he had a pretty good idea of how to manage these sorts of things. So he was now prepared to do something he might not have been prepared to do before. He was prepared to give Pharaoh both an interpretation and a game plan. So the Bible says, Pharaoh asked his officials, can we find anyone else like this man so obviously filled with the Spirit of God? He could have said, can we find anybody else like this man who's good at managing things? Can we find anybody else like this man who has the ability to interpret dreams? Notice what he said, and this is a pagan Pharaoh. He said, can we find anybody else like this man who obviously has a connection to God like he does? Oddly enough, Pharaoh makes this the number one reason he wants to promote Joseph. And isn't it interesting that it was Joseph who said, I can't do this, but God can do it through me. You know, it's a bigger sales pitch. Not, not a big, bigger sales pitch. Let's put it this way. It is a far more advantageous proposition to hire someone that God is using than to hire someone who's showboating. And I think Pharaoh recognized this wasn't just Joseph putting on a show. Joseph had access to the leadership of God. And as a result, he said, uh, he said to Joseph, since God has revealed the meaning of the dreams to you, clearly no one else is as intelligent or wise as you are. You'll be in charge of my court and all my people will take orders from you. Only I sitting on my throne will have a rank higher than yours. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the entire land of Egypt, the most advanced, the most highly developed 
nation in the world at that time. Then Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and placed it on Joseph's finger, which was symbolic of the fact that anything that the Pharaoh could say yes to, Joseph can now say yes to. Anything the Pharaoh can say no to, Joseph can say no to. And, and Joseph can now give orders the same way that the Pharaoh gives orders. And he dressed him in the fine linen clothing and hung a gold chain around his neck. There's a theme in the Old Testament that when the devil steals something from you, God will give you something better. See, it was evil that motivated Joseph's brothers to steal the coat that his father gave him. But God said, I'll give you something better than that. It was evil that, that caused Potiphar to rip whatever garment off of Joseph that Potiphar had given him that sort of showed his status of being in charge of that household. But God said, don't worry about that. You keep your integrity. I'll give you something better. So there is that moment where the Pharaoh puts this fine garment on Joseph and the gold necklace around his neck. And there is that moment where you recognize God had said, look, if you keep your integrity, there isn't anything that, that Satan can take away from you that I'm not going to give you back. And I'm going to give it back to you better than what was taken away. Then he had Joseph ride in the chariot reserved for his second in command. And wherever Joseph went, the command was shouted, kneel down. One Bible scholar that I really respect says this is the equivalent of giving Joseph a limousine and a secret service detail. And I personally hope, you know, my dad is always saying he hopes that God kept something on videotape. And I'll tell you, this is how weird my mind is. I really hope God kept on videotape when Pharaoh's wife had to kneel down as everybody's going, or, or Potiphar's wife, excuse me. Here comes Joseph through, and here's Potiphar's wife, the one who was trying to accuse Joseph and put him in, in jail falsely. And now she's got to bow down like everybody else because here comes Joseph through the city. So Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of all Egypt. And Pharaoh said to him, I'm Pharaoh, but no one will lift a hand or foot in the entire land of Egypt without your approval. See, the thing about it is, you can either look at these X's as days where God wasn't doing anything. Or you can look at these X's where God was holding Joseph back and saying, not yet, not yet, not yet. I'll tell you when to go. I'll tell you when to go. Not yet. And that's kind of the core behind the takeaways that I want to share with you in the last few minutes that we're together. Because I said, Joseph's going to teach us about how to keep the faith when there's no light at the end of the tunnel. So here's the takeaways. And they're going to come kind of rapid fire. So if, you've got, if, you, if you're a note taker and you've got your little pad and pencil out, then uh, let's, let's go forward with this. Here's the first thing that we can learn from Joseph about how to keep the faith when there's no light at the end of the tunnel. The first thing is this. People may forget you, but God never will. It's actually normal for people to forget you. We, our memories aren't that good. It's actually normal for people to let you down because we're imperfect, right? That's one of the things I always tell my premarital couples, just so you know, you're marrying an imperfect person, and they are too, you know? We're all imperfect. So there's, people will let you down, but God never will. And the Bible tells us that this is part of God being fair. So the world that you're in may be unfair, but God is fair. Your job may be unfair, but God is fair. Your family situation may be unfair, but God is fair. And check this out. This is where the scripture says this. For God is not unjust. And this is just another way of saying unfair. God is not unfair. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you've shown your love to him. I mean, this verse could have been written for Joseph, couldn't it? I mean, it's in the New Testament, but this could have been written specifically for Joseph. God will not forget how, you've, how hard you've worked for him and how you've shown your love to him. And then this verse says, for God has said, I will never fail you and I will never abandon you. And the word that gets translated fail here, the Greek word that gets translated fail there means to cut you loose. God is saying, I will not cut you loose. I was in the mall the other day and I saw one of these super moms, right? Because she's by herself. She's the only adult there, but she's got four sons that she's wrangling. It's like herding cats, right? And, you, and I, I mentioned that they're sons because boys are just, 
Well, that's a whole other life, right? Um, and so the thing is, though, this mom had this belt around her waist, and it had these little tethers coming off of it to all four of her. She looked like some sort of planetary display. The kids go, shoom, 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 like running around her, you know? It's like the rings of Saturn or something. And, uh, and, and these, these little straps must be elastic or something, because one of the little boys kept running ahead of mom, right? You know how it is. For one of the kids, you're never moving fast enough. So the kid would just run, 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 and then boing, and bounce back, right? Because the, the thing would pull him back, right? So it might look to you as though these kids are moving around randomly and they're not really getting anywhere. But they are getting somewhere because they're tethered to somebody who knows where she's going. And the thing that God's saying when he's saying, I'm not gonna cut you loose, is he's saying it may feel random to you sometimes. The movement in your life, it may feel like you're in a holding pattern, it may feel like there's not a lot of reason to to where you're going. But just know that because you're tethered to somebody who knows where he's going, you're gonna get there. He's like, I know where I'm going, you're tethered to me, and I'm not going to cut you loose, and I'm not going to abandon you, I'm going to stick it out with you, and we're going we're to work through this. Every day in the prison, God was with Joseph. All right, number two, and this is the one I'm most worried that I may not be able to preach adequately, but number two is God navigates with time, and that makes him unique. Usually we navigate, different. I have a GPS system in my car, which is good because I have absolutely no sense of direction. When we first started naming things on our campus by direction, the South Auditorium and North Auditorium, I'm like, well, you're going to have to show me where that is because I don't know where North is, you know, because I'm not good with directions. But I've got that GPS, uh, and I use it, you know, especially when I travel, but I even sometimes use it in town here. And it says when to turn, right? Turn left here, turn right here, and get, get you where you're going. This is, what, is there, what is her name? Um, Miss Siri, right? Siri, she tells me where to go. Um, and then, of course, if I have Wendy in the car with me, then I have Miss Siri says turn left and Wendy says turn right. And then it's like a divided loyalty thing. And I got to figure out, you know, I turn right. Of course I turn right, you know. Um, but uh, you can navigate directionally without knowing the future, but you can't navigate time without knowing the future. You don't know when an opportunity is gonna come open and you don't know what the details of that opportunity are gonna be. None of us has the ability to navigate time. That is God's province, right? So the Bible says, humble yourselves under the mighty power of God and when, at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. So God doesn't just navigate in direction, God navigates in time. What does it mean to humble yourselves under the mighty power of God? It's like saying to a person who's normally a soloist, instrumental soloist, you've got a violinist who's normally a soloist, and she's going to play now in a, in a, a symphony orchestra, and you say, you know, now, now you're going to have to humble yourself under the hand of the director. The director's going to tell you when to play and what to do, right? That is what we're talking about, that some of us want to live our life as a renegade and follow our own directions, but to humble yourself under God's hand means that you sit under God's direction and you do what he tells you to do, and at the right time... God will lift you up in honor. I have a quick story about this. When I, was, when I surrendered to the ministry, which was in 2006, um, I did not have a ministry job open at the time. I mean, that's not really how it works. You, you surrender to the ministry because of what God's doing in your heart, not because of, job, because of a job opening. And then I had to wait and see what was God gonna do. And, and interestingly enough, in a very short period of time, the church where we had attended for years offered me a job on their music staff, but it was a really small job. It was a music assistant job, not a lot of hours, not a lot of pay, um, but I really had in my heart that this is what I needed to do. This was the opportunity that I needed to take. But I told them, look, I can't start this job until I find another part-time job that has benefits because the church wasn't gonna be able to give me benefits on this part-time job. And so um, I started looking for a part-time job with benefits. Now, I don't know how things work these days. I mean, I know the 
insurance landscape is different than it was then. At the time, there were nearly no part-time jobs with benefits, but there was one company in Oklahoma City that did that, and that was UPS. So I decided to apply for UPS, and I sort of had in my mind like some sort of paper pusher job, like I would be filing stuff or whatever, but I found out that the only job that they had open at the time was truck loading at the distribution center. So there's a big distribution center for Amazon uh, in Oklahoma City, and there are these guys who from midnight to 4 a.m. in the morning are literally loading the trucks that are then gonna go out on the road and deliver packages. Now, I show up for this because I really feel like, I mean, it makes no sense for me to do this job, but I feel like whatever God calls me to do at this point, that's what I've surrendered to. I have to go to this thing at midnight because the application and sort of orientation is at midnight. So I, I go for this thing and they, they take us around and we watch people loading the trucks. And meanwhile, I'm saying to God, I'm going to die if I do this job, you know? Um, we go into this little classroom where they tell us about the job and give us a chance to apply. People are already getting up and leaving just because they know this, this job isn't for them. I'm looking at the guys who are left around me and they have biceps the size of like Mack trucks, you know? Now, I know that I sort of have like the bodybuilder physique going on now. I mean, now I'm kind of cut up and ripped and stuff, but I wasn't at the time, you see. So at the time I was thinking, I, you know, this is really not right for me. But it was almost as though I had this moment with God where God was like, if this is what it takes, would you do this? I filled out the application, assigned it, dated it, turned it in. And surprisingly, I mean, mind-blowingly, UPS never called me back. <laughs> Go figure. I'll tell you who did call me back. Three days later, I got a call from my church. And it was from the pastor and he said, Jonathan, this is a weird question, but I think I remember you said years ago when you were getting your undergraduate, you were, working, you, you, you were a broadcasting major, is that right? And I said, yeah, I was. He said, so are you comfortable with directing, uh, directing video for TV and editing video and, and all that stuff? And I said, yeah, I'm, I've had experience with that. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good with that. And he said, well, here's the deal. He said, two days ago, we had an anonymous $3.5 million donation come in, and a half million dollars of it is earmarked for updating our video ministry, but we don't have anybody in the church that we can hire to do that. So we were wondering, what if we made you television director along with what we've already offered you, and then you could be full-time and you could have benefits? And I just started bawling on the phone. Because it was like, I didn't have to work that job at UPS, but I had to have that moment. I had to have that moment where I said, God, whatever it is that you want. And the interesting thing is, it also coincided with the right time. I mean, that donation, no, none of us knew that was coming through, but God did. God knew that was going to come through. See, nobody knew exactly. I mean, here's the deal. If you look at the timeline with Joseph, Joseph asks the butler to remember him here. But it is two years before Pharaoh needs an interpreter. And it is two years before the 17 years of feast and famine. So what that says is that if the butler remembered Joseph, when Joseph asked the butler to remember Joseph, the very best Joseph gets is an amnesty, maybe. That's the very best he gets. And then he has to figure out a way to eke out a life in Egypt as an ex-con or an ex-felon. No, God knew that for two years he was going to have to tell Joseph, wait, 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 the right moment's coming. Just, just hang on. Go when I say go. See, the better part of faith is our ability to go when God says go. Okay, last point, and this is it. Number three, God is light in the tunnel. See, so many of us are looking for light at the end of the tunnel. But when we have God with us, we take light into the tunnel with us. It's like going into a dark place with a flashlight. We, we're going to be able to see because we have the light with us. And God is, all through the scripture, God characterizes himself as light. So when we have God with us, we have light in the tunnel. 
The psalmist said this, even when I walk through the darkest valley, I'll not be afraid for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect me and comfort me. So here's the deal. David was a shepherd. He understood that even if his sheep couldn't see him, if they could see his rod and his staff leaning up against a rock, they knew he was somewhere nearby. And David is saying, look, sometimes I go through really dark valleys, I go through really dark tunnels, but there's these signs that God leaves for me of his presence, these indications that remind me that God is with me and I have light in the tunnel with me and I know I'm gonna be okay. I'll tell you this quick story and we're gonna be done. If you were to ask my dad what his darkest tunnel is or was, Um, and you were to ask me what my darkest tunnel was, they would probably meet a point of convergence. In 2010, my dad had just been dealing with unlimited stress for a very long time, and he had a sort of physical and emotional uh, breakdown that that you've heard him talk about before many times. For me, it was a very difficult season because I'd only been on staff at New Spring for six months or so. I was very new to this whole thing. I'd only spoken a few times at New Spring. And suddenly, I was speaking for the time that Dad was gone, as long as Dad was going to be gone. We didn't know how long that was going to be. Meantime, my dad is not in a good mental place. When I've talked to him, it's almost scary for me to hear what's going through his mind and through his head. It's a very difficult time for me. And on top of that, y'all know how big a deal Christmas Eve is. It's huge for us. Um, And this was my first Christmas Eve service at New Spring ever, and I'm preaching it. Right, I just was, it was beyond, and also my parents weren't gonna be home for Christmas. I mean, there's just all these things that were, and, and what you have to understand is that my dad has always been the rock, and, you know, I, I've always been able to call my dad anytime I was going through a difficult time. You know, he's always been there to, to talk with me and counsel me if I was going through problems. And, you know, at this point in my life, I'm 29, and I'm still very much counting on that presence of my dad, and I'll go through difficult things. And suddenly I'm going through a difficult thing, and my dad can't help me. And that was tough. Now I feel like I'm in a dark tunnel and I'm all alone. I don't know how long it's going to last. It's very, very difficult to deal with. And I told you, I'm not flexible by nature. I pick up the phone and I call Dr. Allen Day. He was the pastor of the church that I was just telling you about where I first served. And I told him, I'm so far in over my head, I don't even know how to characterize it. I'm in big trouble. I said, I don't know what to do. He said some wonderful things to me. It was our last conversation on the phone. Allen would die in a motorcycle wreck just a few months later. But when we talked, he said a couple things. He said, I'm proud of you and you're going to do fine. He said, I want you to know when you walk out on that stage, your face is going to tell people whether or not everything is okay. If your face says everything is okay, they're going to believe it. If your face says everything is in chaos, they're going to believe that. Go out there, reassure them, let God's peace be in your heart, and you transmit that peace to them. And then I remember he said this. He said, here's what I predict for you. He says, I predict you'll get closer to God at this point in your life than you've ever been before. And he was right. You know why? Because I learned, as much as I love my dad and as much as he's been a mainstay, you know, especially at that point in my life, I was still in my 20s, I learned that whether Mark Hoover was there for me to pick up the phone and call or whether he wasn't there, it was going to be okay because I had God with me. Some of you, you count on finances. If that nest egg isn't there, you think the world falls apart. But you're going to find out someday whether the nest egg is there or the nest egg isn't there, you're going to be okay because you've got God with you in the tunnel. Some of you, it's your health. Let me, let me promise you something. If you live long enough, You're going to have to learn that whether you have your health or you don't have your health, you're going to be okay because God is with you in the tunnel, right? Because God wants you to know, look, so long as I'm with you, we're going to get through this. I'm not going to cut you loose. I'm not going to abandon you. And at the right time, I'm going to promote you if you stick with me. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love. Thank you so much for the fact that you are a God who promotes. Help us to stay with you to follow you, to humble ourselves under your mighty hand so that you can elevate us when the time is right.
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for being here this week. We'll see you next week. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.